I love your purple wall. Thank you. I don't know if you can tell, but it's actually the only, it's only one and a little piece of a doorway that's purple. The rest of it is mint green. This is my room. (laughs) (laughs) It's important for us to make our space. Yes. um, How we like it. And, you know, with the big um, feathers for a moment, when I saw the purple wall and your decor back there, I thought that they were peacock feathers behind you well it's actually grasses from my backyard I brought them in one year they were especially beautiful it was maybe three years ago and I brought them in and left them there and I just think they're really lovely so they've stayed there they are beautiful and they really pop against that nice deep purple wall it's beautiful Yoga Off the Mat is a podcast about life and all of its blunders, bloopers, and blissfulness. Yoga is not a sequence of pretzel shapes that we practice on the mat. It's an intentional lifestyle. I'm your host, Teresa Macy, certified yoga therapist, yogini, licensed massage therapist, and quite possibly certifiably nuts about this crazy, beautiful world we live in together. Join me on this journey of life through conversations and connections. Welcome to the real life world of yoga at Yoga Off the Map. Wherever we're going, I could not say for sure. Where do you live that you have those beautiful grasses? Well, Chicago. <laughs> and I brought them and I brought them in before the snow fell that year. So because <laughs> right now they're all covered with yeah. a foot, yeah. uh, almost a foot and a half of snow in our backyard. Whoa. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Where are you? Right now, I am in South Carolina at Huntington Beach State Park, which is right oh. on the coast. So it's uh, pretty great. Uh, it's my first time spending any real length of time in South Carolina. We've been here just over a month. Um, we snowbird. Um, oh. We go in search of 70, but we usually find 50. <laughs> that actually, that you know, that's okay. <laughs> 50 is okay. I was out for a walk in, in our, there's a, a forest preserve not far from where we live. And um, most days I go there. Today it was 17. <laughs> I was like, hmm. It was very beautiful, but it was 17. <laughs> Yeah, that might be um, ooh, that might be a little bit too cold. You know, I grew up in uh, New Jersey. Uh, we saw we our home was in Pennsylvania in a suburb of Philadelphia, and they just got a ton of snow. Yeah. Yes, they um, did. But when we moved, we decided that we don't need winter really a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I. Um, we did spend Christmas season. We spent December at our our daughter's house in um, outside of Philadelphia as well, and got a nice big snowstorm while we were there. And that was enough. I got to experience winter and then move on. And then move along. There you go. That seems to me to be the best approach, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. So where in, where outside of, of Philly did you grow up? Well, I grew up in central New Jersey in um, Old Bridge, New Jersey, which is, you know, just north of the shore. Everybody thinks there isn't a central Jersey, either (laughs) north or south. So I've squished between. You're either here or you're here. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the rest of it doesn't exist. It's like, it's kind of like New York's viewpoint of the rest of the United States. There's just New York. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I was, I was actually born in New York in Brooklyn, but we moved to New Jersey when I was just before I started kindergarten. So yeah. um, although I was born there, we went back often to visit family and relatives, but I didn't live there. But right. boy, after the year we've had, I sure wish I could go to Manhattan and watch a nice play and go out for like a scrumptious New York dinner. Three hour dinner where you weren't in a hurry. You didn't have to worry about masks. You didn't. I subscribed to your podcast just because when I saw the image that you had of yoga off the mat with the shadow off to the side. And then the re- I thought, this is brilliant. <laughs> this is great. I'd like to welcome Paula Strubeck Gardner. Wow. You have so many things that you have done. You taught French and English as a second language. So both sides of that. Uh, you're a linguistics teacher. So I can't wait to hear about that. And also the thing that really um, attracted me to some of what you've done in your past are the methods for teaching. I think that's such an amazing skill to be able to share knowledge in some sort of an organized way. Um, we, I just did a podcast with a math teacher. So I guess teaching is very much on my mind. He was talking about mindfulness and math, putting mindfulness into the classroom so the methods of teaching sound uh, amazing. And we have so much to talk about between your practices with restorative yoga, multiple sclerosis, um, and retreat. And what, real, what I really can't wait to talk about is forest bathing. So, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that sounds delicious. So I am really excited to get started. So why don't you tell me and our listeners a little bit about yourself from your perspective? Well, I, first of all, I'm really, really delighted and grateful to be here and to be able to share my stories with you. Um, I, I feel like whenever anybody asks me for a bio, I look at my life and I think, this is just way too long for, <laughs> because I'm a little older than most people at this point in my life. And, and I have done some interesting things. I have a friend who once said to me, you are forever reinventing yourself. And I thought, yeah, and I, that felt really cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I started as a teacher of languages. I created a program in French for young children at one of the local universities. Um, I taught graduate classes in linguistics. I taught methods, which interestingly enough, really helped me when I started doing yoga and teaching yoga and helping um, grow other teachers, like teaching teachers how to teach, because I I have always tried to make it very, first of all, fun, secondly, active, thirdly, real. You know, there's a lot of theory and there's a lot of, there's so many wonderful things to learn and study, but to really bring it into a day-to-day -day living process or 
ritual has become very important to me. Um, to me is the essence of, well, not just good teaching, but good living. <laughs> ritual, I, I agree. I'm very, I used to think I was methodical, which I don't think sounds nearly as fun as having rituals. Uh -huh. Methodical sounds like you sit in a little box and, and it's hard to get out of, but rituals, um, when I really started looking at some of the things I do, like putting on my diffuser in the morning to set a mood in my home or um, my, you know, just self-care, how I wash my face every night and what I do, because I'm a massage therapist as well. So bringing in those types of things into my daily living, just it, it's comforting to have familiarity and being a full-time RVer who moves around a lot, yeah. <laughs> rituals yeah. help keep me grounded in, in my life. How um, do you that's a, see that's a beautiful thought I, I, and I'm I'm really intrigued by the fact that you're that you use them as you move around from place to place what a beautiful idea see I'm not methodical <laughs> and and I used to berate myself for not I would start a routine and then I would abandon it and I would get bored with it or I would just forget but when I started calling them rituals, even something as lovely as setting your day by putting your infuser on, I would forget that. Mm -hmm. But but when you do that and you when I make it a ritual, it in it's it there's an intentionality there that wasn't there before and it imbues that very small activity with a sacredness that wasn't there before, couldn't have been there before. I mean, even brushing the routine of brushing your teeth, mm -hmm. you can make into a ritual because it's an intentional caring of yourself. Yeah. We, I, I spoke with a friend a while back because she also moves around often and we were presenting at a retreat and our topic was being grounded and mindful, even though we move around very frequently. And I realized that every time we pull into a new place where we're going to stay, be it for a month, a week, or a day, there's things that you need to do to set up. We need to put the stabilizers down and make sure that we're balanced, uh, that the RV is level. There's a variety of things that you need to do to constantly move around. And I also began to notice that as soon as we got those rituals done, I would always want to go and find out where I was and go out for a walk. Like, what does it look like around here and where are the places to hike? So I would get out and I would walk the campground with my dog. But it occurred to us while we were discussing it that putting the stabilizers down on the RV was how it became grounded. And so that became that ritual as just the same way that the house has to become grounded we do as well right because in yoga we practice non-attachment but also groundedness you know which can sometimes be a little bit opposing to each other to be both grounded and non-attached but the ritual of getting settled 
um, made that much easier to move from place to place. Yes, I can totally see that. And one of the, my husband, I'm not going to let my husband talk to you because one of the things he wants to do is exactly what you and your husband do, which is take an, get an RV and take it from place to place. And, um, and, I, and I've been a little nervous about that because of what you just described, the you know, the vadaness of being out and about in the world and not feeling settled and going from place to place. But what a beautiful example of how you ground the vehicle and in doing so you ground yourself. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I don't, I like to travel. I always like to travel, but it also made me very unsettled. Anytime that I would travel, as soon as I got to packing and doing things uh, and getting ready to leave, I would find that I was nervous. And um, although I really wanted to go, there was a resistance to it. So if it makes you feel any better, I won't tell your husband at all, I promise. <laughs> when you take your house with you where you go, there's a, there's a level of, hey, this is okay, because although I'm in a different place, I still have all of my things, and I never, ever have to pack. Yeah, isn't that the truth? See, and I look at, when I look at it, it's like, I'd rather go and live someplace for two to three months at a time, four months, maybe even six months, but I never put those two together as taking your home with you and going to from place to place and settling in, as you said, settling in and looking around the landscape, taking a walk to make, just to get a feel for where you are. And you always, That's what I do when I travel, but I never applied it that way. Yeah. Um, we used to move around a whole lot more. We would stay a place a couple of days and then, you know, it's kind of like yoga. Like we were, we were in this constant look for the destination. So it's like, all right, we got here, but we're supposed to be here and we're supposed to be here. And we were constantly trying to get to whatever that destination was. And then we sat and I was like, this is very unsettling for me. Um, it's good for vacation. It's not good for living. Now we generally stay in every place that we go at least a month, which really gives you time to live in the place like if you're there for a short period of time you feel like you always have to be running to see things yeah but if you're stay for a month or six weeks you know that you can take a day that says we're just going to sit on the beach all day and do nothing or sit out at our own campground and there's no hurry there's no pressing you you just get to breathe and be yes yeah yeah uh, but you said all Vata. And one of the things I forgot to mention when you uh, when I began with your intro, my apologies, is that you're also an Ayurvedic educator and consultant. And Ayurveda is one of the it's a sister practice to yoga. And I've studied it a bit. Yeah, it's on my list to study more. But can you kind of fill us in a, um, a little bit about what Ayurveda is for anybody oh. who may not I would be happy to because it, yoga opened the door for me and Ayurveda helped me step through it. Um, Ayurveda is the ancient approach to health and well-being. Um, Ayurveda is the Indian word, the Hindu word, I think, that might be Sanskrit. I'm not sure. I don't remember that. Um, but it means the knowledge of long life. So it's what can we do? in our life 
that will allow us to live as long as possible in their tradition so that we could get rid of all of the stuff that we needed to get rid of in order to minimize the number of times we had to come back <laughs> and do it again. Um, but it's, it's looking at the natural world and includes us as part of the natural world. In Ayurveda, mind, body, spirit are inseparable. Mm. So what we do for or to one, we do for or to the others. And, and it requires, well, you know, the thing about Ayurveda that I absolutely love is that it's a very gentle approach. It's, it's really encouraging us to look at ourselves with loving eyes so that we can see ourselves the way we really are, not the way we want to be, not the way we used to be, because we clearly change over the years and balance in Ayurveda is not the balance that the Western world looks at, which is where everything is equal. Mm -hmm. Balance in is unique to each of us. And we all have three different constitutions that are all part of our one. And so my, my balance or harmony actually is the way I like to think of it is totally different from yours. Um, the three are Vata, Pitta, and Kapha, and they each have different qualities, and everything in Ayurveda has qualities. So whatever we look at nurtures us or works against us, whatever we do, whatever activities we do, whatever weather we're in, um, how we eat, what we eat, what we do in the morning, the rituals that we have or don't have, you know, in Ayurveda, it all counts. And this is what this kind approach is what drew me in. And then this focus on awareness has helped me in my yoga practice, in my life, in my being. And then now it feels like they're all merging together or on that path rather than being separate constellations that are unrelated to each other it, it's it was one of the greatest gifts I gave to myself I undertook it to begin with out of curiosity because a friend of mine who is an Ayurvedic practitioner helped me heal a rash um, it was during the summer and I was so intrigued that I decided because you know I had because I was a yoga student, I knew a little bit about Ayurveda, you know, I knew about the doshas, but there's so much more to Ayurveda. And it's the philosophy, I think, that so appeals to me and has, has like I said, has helped my yoga practice, as well as everything. Yeah, I love that you mentioned a gentle approach. It's such a gentle approach. I think um, we are taught to work hard, to accomplish things, to get things done, to maybe not even pay attention to the idea that we're tired or we're worn down, uh, we're stressed out because there's such a high value on what we accomplished. And to take that and not give up on that idea of, you know, serving and 
accomplishing and making contributions, but to add a gentle approach to it um, just sounds so delicious. It's doesn't so it sound lovely? I mean, doesn't it, one of the, in um, the Yoga Sutra, Stira Sukham Asanam, the poses are meant to be steady and filled with ease. You are meant to abide in ease. I can't tell you how many times I injured myself doing yoga because I needed to be the strongest. I needed to be the best. I needed to do the hardest poses. And that's not the point. You know, the point of yoga is not the pose. It's the residue that it leaves on our central nervous system is what my teacher Judith Lassiter says. And the more that I understand and appreciate that, the deeper my appreciation for ease and finding and letting ourselves receive softness, stopping the fights, you know? Yeah, you gotta work hard to do things. When you're really passionate about something, you have to do that, but you also need to rest. And when we can rest, when we allow ourselves to rest, we actually can accomplish so much more. And, And our culture totally ignores that. Yes, there's definitely all of the statements that we use without having any conscious thought of the words that we're choosing, because I believe that words matter a lot. When we sit and rest for a day, it gets translated into, I didn't do anything, I did nothing today, that there's no value in the idea that we were recharging or restoring ourselves by taking the much needed time to balance out all of the activities and the requirements that we have from work and family and things that we know we need to accomplish. But this idea of stopping, and you know, I see that you work a lot with restorative yoga, that you have a passion also for restorative. And I can imagine listening to you talk why that was your, your focus, why you kind of really went into that restorative type of yoga to recharge and teach people that it's okay to slow down for a little bit? It took me a long time. Um, I, I mean, I injured myself regularly and I had studied, I had taken a couple of courses with Judith Lassiter and this was before I did my certification with her. But there was one time when I, I couldn't do regular yoga. I couldn't do my active yoga because I was hurt in my shoulder. I was hurt in my back. I was, so I was like, well, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And I did, I taught, but when I taught, I didn't, I don't usually do the practices. I'm focused on what my students are doing and I might ask somebody else to model. Um, but I, I did all I did all, all I did (laughs) was one restorative yoga pose for 20 to 30 minutes for a full year. That was my practice. And at the end, it just so happened that a friend of mine was opening a yoga studio and asked me if I would come to the class. She had invited one of our favorite teachers to lead us. And it was a fairly rigorous practice. And I went into it saying, you know, I'm just, I do what I can do. And I had never felt that strong. I had never been that flexible. I was able to do things that I wasn't able to do before I did 
restorative yoga. And in, then the light bulb starts flashing. Well, there must be something to this. <laughs> and um, I've, I know from personal experience, just this, you know, you roll back into habits. Um, during the pandemic, I, uh, I went out too fast. That's <laughs> what we would say in a race. I was very focused on, on helping everybody else through this moment. I was calling it at the time. This is a very long moment. Um, and I had a very rigorous physical practice. I, I still did my restorative, but I was insisting, you know, and at one point back in the fall, I basically collapsed on the mat mm. and not with anything serious, but just out of exhaustion and went into restorative pose. And the next day it was like, don't even bother. You know, my body, finally, I listened to my body. And so I've, that's what I've been doing since late August, early September is restorative because it's just, there's so much information about the vagus nerve and the psoas and how important it is for them to be soft and relaxed so that they can help us move easily between the different nervous systems. And restorative yoga is like the answer. <laughs> yeah, well, the injury comes from the striving part and restorative teaches us not to strive. Right. Uh, my training before yoga and yoga therapy, well, first it was dentistry, then it was massage therapy. And... Um, Massage therapy has techniques called positional release. When my teacher taught us and they introduced positional release into our coursework, the, the way he presented it was that there was a physician who dealt with people who had chronic pain. And he had a very, very busy practice and was often behind schedule, which you don't really want when you're in pain to sit there and wait for somebody who's often behind schedule. So they had a policy in their office that they would take people and if they were in the waiting room for more than a few minutes, they would bring them into one of their operatories. They stocked up a volume of pillows and props and the assistant for the physician would help whoever was waiting to find the most comfortable position. So they would prop really? them and put them into a position of comfort to wait. And the result as he moved forward was that he would come in to work with somebody and they would get up to chat and they'd be like, wow, I feel so much better. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and realize that, you know, taking the body to a place of comfort and letting it rest was right. powerful um, yes. and that he could help to teach people to care for self with those qualities. So they taught us positional release. And then I come into yoga and they're like, oh, so we're going to teach you restorative yoga. And it was just so natural yeah. because I had already been working with it from my massage therapy profession. That is so cool. There was, you know, the, the, the gentleman who in the thirties, I think wrote a book called you must relax Herbert Benson. Um, is that who I'm thinking of? Nah, I can't remember, but in the thirties, somebody wrote a book called you must relax. 
And nobody really paid attention to it, but it's essentially what you're describing. And then it wasn't until 1975 that this is Herbert Benson, I think, who wrote um, a whole series of books about the relaxation response. He was a Harvard trained and Harvard physician, and he studied the relaxation, what he eventually named the relaxation response. And yeah, of course, people poo-pooed him, but in fact, this has been the foundation of so much research going forward as to, again, let's bring, let's come back to that mind, body, spirit. You know, it's all together. It's all one. And if you can get the body to relax, the mind will follow. And then the spirit also feels lighter, better. Yeah. And you know, you talked about the natural world and you said, and, and we're even included in that natural world in reference to Ayurveda and moving around from place to place, seeing different environments, hiking in nature and seeing different types of birds and looking around, it occurred to me, and I don't know when, it feels very recent and it should have been earlier because I too am not a little spring chicken, but <laughs> what it could have should is, you know, they but, just don't exist. <laughs> but it becomes really, really apparent and that we're just such a tiny species in a huge environment filled with plants and animals. And because we stand on two feet and have a brain hold the phone yes and we can hold the phone (laughs) um we somehow feel like that's nature and then there's us like this there's this inherent separateness that what happens to self has no impact in either direction to the rest of the environment and once we get to that understanding that there's this holistic balance that we each need each other. I mean, I haven't figured out why I need ticks yet, but other than <laughs> that, but the balance is, is that I need to be mindful of how I present within these, this natural world that I go out hiking in and moving and exploring and with a respect for the other species and, 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 trees and plant life that I encounter along the way. Well, it's really interesting when you start reading a little bit about, and I, you know, I know very, very little about botany, etc. but I, I started this book year, a few years back called The Secret Life of Trees, mm-hmm. written by, a, I think he's either German or Danish um, arborist. And did you know that the communication, that the root systems of trees are communication systems. They, especially in forests, not so much in the backyard that has several different species of trees, but they, they communicate with each other. If, for example, a tree is dying or it has been cut down, um, it will send the water from its root, like around its roots to another tree, to other trees, so that they can thrive because it is not in a position to use the nutrients or to use the water. It's just amazing. 
it's so giving. It's yeah. like it's like a sequoia um, forest. I remember um, years ago, I have seven brothers and sisters and a humongous family. We are very good at reproducing. So there's a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, when my father was ill, for some reason at the time that he was um, in chemo and he was going through his illness, I was again reminded what the power of a big family was because we were there to help. We were there to assist my mom and, you know, the life cycle. He took care of us when we were younger, we took care of him. So that whole life cycle of how that all fits together, but for whatever reason, the universe started introducing sequoias to me and they just kept showing up in different things. I would read about it. I would see a photograph. So I began to research it a little bit, and it was really interesting to find out that they are the, the tallest trees on earth. I mean, they're huge, Oh, but they don't have a taproot. All of their roots, and when you said communication and root systems, yeah. all of their roots stay very superficial to the earth. They don't go deep into the, the depths of the dirt. And you only find sequoia trees in groves. And the reason is because their root systems reach out and they entangle each other and the roots are used to hold each other up. And oh. I found it fascinating as a metaphor for how the family came together and entangled our roots, entangled our all of the things my father had taught us about supporting each other and being available to help each other and the act of service. And these sequoia trees that were just a natural example of the power of being in community, sangha, tribe, whatever people wanna call those connections of supporting and holding each other up. What a beautiful image. I mean, nature's filled with it, right? Yes, yeah. You know, um, you mentioned forest bathing earlier today, and I, I would love to go with you sometime. It has become, it's interesting because now I have a name for what I've done for most of my life, which is to go into the woods to tread lightly to be really alert and watchful and and to and I and stop whenever I hear something of interest or see something of interest um, touching the trees touching the plants doing these things instinctually and that's what forest bathing is it's shinrin yoku in in Japanese and it's they are the originators, if you will, of the formal practice of forest bathing. But I, I think a lot of us who gravitate to nature do those kinds of things very naturally. You know, it's, it's nothing to stop and watch um, a bird in flight or to watch one of the uh, woodpeckers go to town on the tree or to just, if you're lucky enough to see a deer first thing in the morning, to watch how gracefully they move. And um, that, that's, that is forest bathing in a nutshell. And it, it sounds like you, you do that. 
Yes, my son um, comes and visits. I know that you also have two sons. I have two sons as well. Um, he will come and visit and he introduced me and uh, my husband and others when he comes into town to visit we have a towpath in um, that goes from where i lived outside of philadelphia to a place called new hope and it's about an 18 or 19 mile walk and he would come and we will walk that path together so we get lots of quality time we're outside there's a little canal next to us and a variety of different trees and wildlife and herons that we'll see along the way. But we spend the afternoon, we walk, we stop at a couple of places, we'll have lunch um, on the walk, we pack our lunch and we, and we yeah. pack it in. And then we'll get into town and sleep and then walk back the next day. And it was so transformational to have them come into town and realize you don't have to plan anything big and exotic. Really mm -hmm. what we wanted to do was have enough time to visit with, uh, with each other. Maybe that meant walking in quiet next to each other for a little bit or having conversation that was natural. But the other thing was just noticing how everything changed in that 19 mile, 18, 19 mile walk. And I can remember walking under a set of pine trees and how the scent changed from being out in the open to being in this small part of the towpath that just had these pine trees that kind of grew over the top. And the first thing I noticed when I walked in was the change in scent. Yes. And I was like, I need to stop and just yes. stand here for a minute. So that idea of the forest bathing and letting all of your senses provide information um, is really a way of like a deep connection. I just didn't want and to leave pleasure, information and pleasure. Yeah. You know, we so often leave that out, but it's such a key. It, it's so critical to the rest of our being to allow ourselves to experience, to receive pleasure. <laughs> and that, I guess, goes back to that gentle approach where, you know, I in my yoga therapy, coming from a massage therapist, I will talk to my clients and different students that come to my class and say, you know, my philosophy is a little bit different. I don't adhere to the no pain, no gain philosophy. I think it's no pain is all the gain yeah. and that we really don't have to injure ourself trying to heal ourselves. that there is yeah. a gentler, <laughs> softer approach to building self-awareness and deciding what it is that you want to accomplish to find the pattern of what it is that you're looking into and then to allow it to grow from the body, the mind, and the spirit. Yeah. And gentleness. It, it's sad and empowering to think that we have to learn to be gentle with self. But once we do, there's so many yeah. benefits. It's so that is so absolutely true. Um, so I want to know about <laughs> the gentle approach of being the first woman to have ever completed the Mount Everest marathon. I didn't even know there was one, but could you tell me about that? That sounds I can. That was my life before gentle. <laughs> <laughs> my husband, well, my husband and I met 
because he was going to run a marathon in Paris and I had lived there for a year. And so friends connected us and I wrote a letter of introduction, blah, 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 blah. And years later, we, he was going to run the Mount Everest marathon. I think it was the second that they were running. And it was organized by a, a British woman who was married to a Nepali. And I forget what the name of their company was, but um, you hike up to the starting line, which is just shy of the, the base camp where they leave, um, they take all the expeditions that climb Mount Everest from. And then you run down back to 12,000 feet, which is Namchi Bazaar. And I was just gonna go and hike with them. And then we got the participation list and there were no women from the United States. And I was like, wow, I'm gonna do this. <laughs> Not thinking, you know, I'm gonna be the first woman to do this. It was just, I'm gonna be the only woman <laughs> on this trip. And as it turned out, there hadn't been a woman on the trip prior or a US woman. And I wasn't the first woman to finish. That was, the Brits did that. I. I was lucky to finish, <laughs> you know, usually um, my marathon, my fastest was just under four hours and my slowest was a lot slower than that. So the average pace for people was, it was like twice what they did because you're so high and you mm -hmm. can't, you know, the air is much thinner. You can't breathe, blah, blah, blah. But even then um, I was a, I wasn't your usual run to pain. It was more like I wanted the experience of being in these, the mountains are beautiful. The people are beautiful. And they, you know, imagine being around people who greet each other all the time. I mean, this isn't just at the end of class. Every time you walk past someone on a path, their hands might not be together because their hands are full or they're carrying something but they will always look at you in your eyes and say namaste. You know, imagine the love that you send to people over and over again when you, you use the words, the light that is me honors the light that is you. You know, we're in this together. It, it's, it was so beautiful. That was, that was before... Um, I was ever introduced to yoga, but, but that left such a lasting um, impression in my heart. Yeah, the connection when people value just that eye to eye contact, even if it's brief and we never cross paths again. You know, I, I was coming out of a store once and this has happened to so many people and we probably never even acknowledge it. But I came in from the back of my car to get into my driver's seat and somebody came in from the front of her car who was parked next to me to get into the passenger seat. And we both arrived at that place at the exact same time. She was getting in and we came to this place and generally most people would just decide that somebody's going to stop, let the other person get in their car and everybody goes on their way. But she stopped for a minute and she said, do you mind if we pause here? And I said, sure. Um, and she said, I don't believe that the universe puts two people in such a close position as 
something random and coincidental. I think that when we cross paths, we cross them for a very specific reason, and it's worth taking at least a moment to acknowledge each other and realize that for whatever reason, we needed to see each other today. This gave me goosebumps. <laughs> oh my gosh. It gave me goosebumps at the same time, but it taught me this great lesson to notice, right? How often you're in that situation where you're just passing somebody in a very close way. And it doesn't have to be a big conversation, right. but just an acknowledgement. You know, I had, I had the great fortune of doing almost two years of my undergraduate work at Loyola of Rome, because I campus there. And, um, and I, and one of the things that I brought home with me and that I practice daily is the Italians, when they talk to you, look, this is how it feels. They look from their heart, through their eyes, into your eyes and into your heart. There, there is such a profound connection that you make with perfect strangers, even if all you're saying is, excuse me, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's just, it's amazing. And that was the experience that I had in Nepal with, with people saying namaste as they, you know, as you walked past each other on the path. It's, it almost reminds me of us being able to take where we are now and bring us back into small communities, right? Where people know each other, even if not by name, because it's a smaller town, a smaller community, people are connected and depending on each other. And we have such a hunger right now for deeper connections and ways of supporting and encountering each other with that intention of the light in me honors the light in you. I think it's one of my biggest attractions to the mindfulness of yoga and taking it off the mat. It's what I mean when I say yoga off the mat. You don't need a mat. You don't need fancy clothes. But there's so many ways that we can live an intentional lifestyle when we study these practices well, I always look at it as we, we practice practice on this little piece of rubber because it's a it's a confined area and what we're doing is very small really um, and we do that so that we can learn about ourselves the way we truly are and operate and feel and um, and then take that into the world so that we can live more deeply, more honestly with, with greater authenticity. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm remembering how early on in my yoga career, I mean, I started when my boys were one and three and I came home one day from a yoga class and the older one was five and he was down in the basement with a couple of friends and they were throwing rocks at the exposed bulbs in the ceiling and they had already broken one. <laughs> and I was like, what, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Well, we just wanted to see what would happen. And I said to them, you're very lucky that I just am getting home from yoga. <laughs> 
because I'm feeling very relaxed and I'm going to appreciate what your experiment was. And then I, of course, made them help me clean up. But, um, but it's that kind of thing where you practice equanimity on the mat, letting go of all of the turbulence so that when you encounter it in real life, you've, you've got a, a foundation, even if it's just a small foundation, you've got something that you can build on in your real life. Yes, I have been teaching a series lately and I went back to the roots for, um, and started with the eight limbs of yoga. And that begins with the yamas and the niyamas. And the first one is ahimsa. And, you know, it's like going back and learning what you learned, but now you learn it with a whole new lens because you've moved so far beyond it. And then you go back to a basic. And I came back to ahimsa with that idea again. Oh yeah, nonviolence. I'm a yogi. I'm not violent. Yeah, I got this one accomplished. I can, you know, kind of move on. And I started reading about it to reteach something I thought I already knew and realized that most of the practices are about self. They're not really about, I mean, obviously the offshoot is that it's going to be about others. But when we think about the practice of nonviolence, it's nonviolence to self. It's do I get enough sleep? Am I eating well? Do I talk to myself in a respectful way? Can I practice this gentle approach? And when we use it as a tool for self-study and for self-care, it just authentically and organically comes out to everyone else that we interact with. And if we are not practicing it with self, we're certainly not going to be very successful with others either. We'll, we'll certainly be very, more limited than we, we would if we could first, you know, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, except we always forgot the unto you part. You know, we, we're always taking care of somebody else and we're, we're looking to be kind or generous or, or nonviolent to someone else. But think of the way we talk to ourselves. Think of the way we look at ourselves in the mirror. Just from, you know, what, or when somebody says, what five things would you like to change about yourself? Well, how about what five things do I love about myself? <laughs> when I look in the mirror, the first, you know, the first thing I do is, oh my God, my hair oh my God, I, you know, this, this, that, and the other thing. And one of the things I occasionally do with students when I know them really well, or they know me really well, is I will have, will face a mirror and will practice just for a minute because, oh my God, that's long enough. Looking into our, the reflection of our eyes mm. lovingly. Because first of all, we avert our eyes. We don't look at ourselves in the mirror in our eyes. We look at everything else. And it's an amazing exercise to really, first of all, bring it home how, how I, don't, I don't abide in ease with myself. Yeah. You know, and there's multiple layers, of course, of all that stuff. But how cool that you found that when you went back, when you were going to then present it to other people. So you were able to bring more of the truth to them. Yes. And I learned very much the lesson that you just mentioned. I didn't know it 
And when you were talking, I was reminded of my mom. When she, my mom, oh, she was in her 80s and she had a vertebral fracture. So um, she went from uh, very self-sufficient to um, being in pain a lot and needing help from us, help from her children, uh, which is nothing she ever want. She did not want to... um, to do that. She didn't want to live with any of us. She wanted to not be a burden. But I remember going over to see her one day and she was a little sad. And we sat down to talk and I said, mom, you feel, you know, I feel that you're sad today. Um, What's going on? And she said, and she's 80, more than 80 at this time, maybe 81 or 82. She said, you know, Today, for the first time, I looked in the mirror and I saw an old woman for the first time ever in my life. And it made me very sad. And first of all, I mean, it was sad because she felt sad. It was joyous because she had never visualized her herself as being an, as she said, I was, I'm an old woman now. And it was just such a lesson that a soft lesson that she wasn't even trying to teach was that how you look at yourself is extremely important and so attached to your mood. And there was a sadness that she was having to make this transition. And Um, how beautiful, how beautiful that you were able to see and acknowledge that in her so that she could express that. Because I think so often we gloss over sadness. We don't want to deal with sadness. We don't want to grieve. We just want to go straight to the, don't worry, be happy. Um, and, and that's not, you know, we have all of these feelings. We have all of these emotions. And the more we get to express them, the less likely that we're going to hang on to them and that they'll interfere with our ability to be present, radically present in this moment. Yeah, this um, this idea that all, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, many people probably grew up a lot like I did. You had good emotions and bad emotions. You know, everything was labeled. It was either good or it was bad. I was happy. Oh, that's good. I'm yeah. sad. Yeah, that's bad. You can't be that. And my journey with yoga has started to um, really help me to share with others that all emotions need space. And if we stuff them down, they show up in our body in a different way. What my brain doesn't want to deal with, it now becomes a pain in my neck or a pain in my shoulders, right? That if we do take that time and create this space, and as yoga teachers, you're a restorative yoga teacher, and as a massage therapist, we're taught to hold safe space for others, right? And the off the other side of that is to recognize that we have to hold safe space for ourselves. Oh, I actually, um, I'm in the, I'm in week four of my soul soothing sabbatical. Um, <laughs> I took off all my teaching for the months of January and February, and I have de- devoted this time to doing exactly what you just described, which was really becoming aware of, instead of denying 
the emotions and some of them, you know, when you do that, when you focus on there's some long seated things that you didn't even remember. And all of a sudden they're rearing their heads and it's like, and then a pain goes away. Mm -hmm. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's that mind, body, spirit connection. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, It's just a little large. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes a little overwhelming. Um, so there's a couple of other things that I, I know about you. I'm, first of all, I'm really grateful because we didn't really know each other until a week ago or so. So getting to know each other better is um, really amazing that we have this time to talk. But I know that you work a lot with multiple sclerosis. Um, and so I'd like to hear about that and if that in any way um, is part of you offer retreats as well you just mentioned that you're on your own sabbatical and yes, retreat on my own retreats um yes i yeah i've been teaching people with multiple sclerosis I've been teaching, it started off as a an exercise class and i brought more and more and more yoga into it um this was in 2003 i think and Finally, we decided that it would be beneficial to them to do just yoga because they, one of the things they need is to relax, is to find ease, is to not push and push and push. I mean, their bodies have said in varying degrees to varying levels have said, that's enough, stop. Um, so we, we then started doing chair yoga because it was easier to accommodate everyone in the class. And I've, you know, I've been with them for a long time. So I've seen the disease evolve, um, devolve actually. So many of them have gone from being able to walk on their own to walking with walkers. A couple of people are now in wheelchairs. There are varying levels of, of, um, abilities and and interests and but they are there every week and and even and they are the ones they asked me to please do something so that they could because I would say you need to do yoga at home we only (laughs) meet once a week you need to do yoga at home even if it's one pose a day even if it's one breath a day and so they asked me to put something together and I, you know, I, I was gonna, was gonna, was gonna and started writing this book for them about 10 years ago. And then at the beginning of the pandemic is like, well, let's just do it. So I had, um, I took photographs of one of the members of the group and they're, they're incredibly supportive of each other. They have weekly lunches where they talk about their meds and what all the things they're going through. It's, it's really a, a wonderful, uplifting group to be part of. So I published the book in September, MS Chair Yoga at Home, um, in larger print so that you can put it against <laughs> something and still see what the instructions are. Plus it has one, you buy the book and you can then Um, get access to the videos that go along with it because it's always it's hard to do yoga from a book but you can certainly do and they're familiar with what we do and 
Um, I'm used to taking things and bringing it down step by step so that it's accessible to everybody, giving lots of options because not everybody can do everything. And I want everybody to feel welcome and that it's their yoga um, that we're doing. Yeah. And I know that um, we can find that book. So I'm going to put that in our show notes so people can find that link if um, they know somebody who can benefit, uh, but also as a means of finding you. Um, yeah, it's actually the, the, yoga, the chair yoga book is, it's, although the title is MS Chair Yoga, it's appropriate for anybody who either can't or doesn't want to get down to the floor for whatever reason. Maybe they're at work and they want to do it in their chair at their desk. Or maybe they have some other condition that doesn't allow them to. I mean, that's the same kind of yoga that I teach the seniors who are unable to get up and down from the floor as well. So it's really, it's really for everybody. But I devote, I dedicated it to them. So sometimes I just like to practice while I'm in my chair, even yeah. though I can get up and down off of the ground. It's a, it's a new way of experiencing. Whatever's going on in the body, every time you place it in a different position, we learn yeah. something new. And that comes back to your earlier statements that it isn't necessarily that the asana looks right or in a certain way, but what's our experience in it, right? Where can we find our self-knowledge? You know, it, because I'm a body worker, I, I tend to speak in terms of that first edge. And we often have to help people to understand what that even means. I know as a massage therapist and learning massage techniques, it took me a while to realize what that first edge is um, when you talk about working deeply within the body. And sometimes the movement of that first bit of restriction is a very small movement. And then we have the chance and the opportunity to sit with that restriction and notice, is this in my body? Was this like a a thought that came up that stopped me here? Is there some sort of an emotional component to this shape or a tenderness that I feel here? So um, being able to have enough tools to change up the way that we um, practice, it deepens our, our awareness when we go out for that Walk in, walk in the woods <laughs> so that we can do it's all connected. Some it's forest connected. bathing. <laughs> oh, that is um, amazing. And you have two main messages that you like to share um, that uh, I'm aware of. And your two messages are that you are worthy and we can trust ourself, to trust yourself, um, which do you want to put a little context around those philosophies? Sure. Um, it, it took me many, many years. I'm thinking that I was in my late fifties when I had this, uh, moment, this epiphany of realizing that one of the reasons I didn't do some of the things that I wanted to do, and I've, I've done a lot in my life and I'm I'm not bemoaning anything or regretting anything, but there was always a do it anyway, you know, or just do it, yeah, do it anyway. And, and it dawned on me that there were a lot of things that I held back or I withheld myself from 
because I didn't feel worthy. It was a very sad day <laughs> for me in some ways. I mean, it was a punch in the face and made me, it, it was, it required grieving. Um, but it was also very enlightening because it made me realize just how, how important our sense of self-worth is and not a, a genuine belief that who I am, just as I am, is enough. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to do anything. I just am. And that's enough. And that alone makes me worthy. And then recently it became the notion of looking at this and saying, okay, so why do I find myself doing things that are okay with other people or for other people, but don't really feel right in me? And that was tied to, you know, feeling, feeling worthy, but it became because I need to trust myself. I need to see the world through my eyes. I need to acknowledge how I feel. It doesn't at all demean the next person or diminish them, at, but, but, you know, that's how it came to me. And so, so now this trust yourself, I actually had somebody make me a, um, a mandala that says, I haven't gotten it yet, but it says, I trust myself. Uh -huh. to remind myself that when I'm faced with, oh, for goodness sake, even which ice cream flavor, should I get ice cream or not? And if the answer is I'm getting it, which ice cream flavor, I mean, what is there to agonize over? But lots of times I find myself with stupid little decisions like that. It's like, what do you want? <laughs> what is it that, and if I can answer the question of what ice cream flavor I want, I figure then that will open the layers of what do I want to be when I grow up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. Ugh. <laughs> what you, what do you want is always that hard oh. question. Oh my goodness. I mean, and when, when we bring it down to that least common denominator, do I want vanilla or chocolate ice cream or do I want chocolate chips in that thing? Um, and that's a hard struggle. Yeah, what do I want it becomes difficult. And the other thing that I find with making decisions when when we're when you're not really sure uh, is that trusting yourself. Like if I start going down this path and realize, hmm, this might not be exactly what I wanted, and I make a little turn like a switchback when I'm walking through when I'm hiking, right? whatever happened in that first straight line of this is what I want, there was some lessons in there that helped me to say, all right, now I'm going to make this turn. And I think a lot of times we're programmed to look at that as a failure. Oh, well, I was going here and that didn't happen. Yeah. But really there was a reason that we needed to take those steps to get to that next place, that there was a lesson or just time. You know, it, as you're saying this, there's two things that jump to my mind. One is that in, in doing yoga, um, Judith Lasseter has a new book called Yoga Myths. And I had, I've studied with her frequently over the years. And one of the things that she taught me several years ago was to stop tucking my tailbone 
in standing poses. And, you know, first of all, I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. But then when I started listening to myself talk, even some of the cues like lengthen your tailbone is, is tucking the tailbone. So we, so we, which has no basis in, in anatomy, but we teach our students, listen to your body. What does that mean? Yeah. If, if we then tell them, you know, lengthen your tailbone, even though anatomically that is actually a bad thing for them to do, what are we teaching them? And how do we learn to trust our, to listen to ourselves and to trust ourselves? And honestly, since I started practicing some of those, what I call Judith wisdoms, they're just based on anatomy. Um, I've, I've noticed that I've, you know, I try, again, I trust myself on the mat more and that spills over into my real, the rest of my life, which is the real life, my, my, the rest of my life, so that I'm able to recognize when I'm questioning myself and go back to what is it that you want? And the other thing was about the path. Last May, with a lot of the paths around me were closed because of the pandemic. Um, and there was one en an entrance that I had never taken. And I've lived in this area for most of my life. And I, I was walking along a big wide designated path. And there was a group of about 12 people coming towards me that didn't have masks. And I was like, okay, so now what do I wanna do? And there happened to be this little skinny off the road path. And I, you know, I'm obedient. I don't usually take those because it says stay on the main path. Yeah. I'm going there. And then, I, you know, and I don't have a good sense of direction. So as I'm walking that way, it's like, well, you can always just turn around and go back. <laughs> you know, you, you can find your way back. And it opened up a world to me that I never knew existed around here. This is the Midwest. Who expects ravines and waterfalls? And, and I found, it, and not just that one path, but a myriad paths all over the place. And I feel like now I'm just beginning to explore what's there. And what is there a lesson? Oh, there's so many lessons. It's <laughs> <laughs> gonna explode. But absolutely, you know, you're going a certain way, you're learning those lessons. You, for whatever reason, I, I like to think the angels are nudging me. You know, your guides are all of a sudden you're going in a different direction and, and there's all this beauty that you could never have imagined. Yes. Um, my husband and I, we just moved in the same campground from one side that had beach access to the other side that's all wooded. So not very far, a mile, but the whole landscape changed. So there's a path that's right next to where um, our home base is at this moment that I hadn't taken yet. So we went out for our walk before uh, my podcast recordings this morning. We went down this path and as we were walking, we came to this clearing and the clearing, there's a bird sanctuary here. Now we have gone and the bird, so you have the ocean, then you have this um, little lake 
for lack of a better word, of water. So the ocean was on one side. If you get went to the right on the beach, you, were, you could see the ocean. If you went to the left, you'd come into this sandy dune and then approach the bird sanctuary lake that was filled with all kinds of birds and different wildlife. So this morning I said, you know, before we, uh, I'm going to spend the day inside, let's go out and get some some forest bathing. I didn't call it that, but we did. Uh, let's walk down this path and see where it leads. So it led us to the other side of that same lake that we were looking at from the beach access. And it was really, we stopped, we sat, we looked at it, we watched the birds for a little bit, but it really was a reminder that a different lens, a different perspective shows a whole different view of something that's already so very familiar. And it was both like, oh, I feel at home and I feel grounded because I've been visiting this place for a month. But now after being, again, methodical, getting onto the beach, walking the same path and going to the same place each day because I loved it so much, gave me that sense of groundedness and familiarity. Now I'm seeing it from a different perspective and say, huh, first of all, I could have, there's just so many different places to find if you just take one different turn. And, and we can turn back. Um, so I'm going to put all this great information and make it easy for our listeners to connect with you. Um, as we write this up, but, or share one of your teachings or practices with us. I would, I would love to. Um, a few years ago, I started closing my classes and workshops and retreats with a ritual. And I would love it if you would join me. So you'll need to take your glasses off if you have glasses on, and I do. So rub your hands rigorously together to generate some heat. And now very gently cup your hands over your eyes and feel the warmth of your hands and your eyes and their sockets, your cheekbones, your jawbone, all the way down to your head. Place a smile behind your eyes, behind your lips, behind your heart, and receive the softness that moves into your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And we'll bring our hands together in front of our hearts so that we might honor ourselves and each other with the word that's used throughout the Himalayas to say hello and goodbye, and which means the light that is me honors the light that is you. Namaste. 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 That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Teresa, for inviting me to do this. It's been a pleasure to get to know you and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. I do as well. I think we have so many other subjects we can expand on at a later date. I so appreciate your time and that you reached out to me um, and offered that time to connect with me and our listeners. I'm sure we will continue to cross paths. Thank you.
thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us. It is my pleasure. Namaste. I would love to stay connected, to stay yoked. Join the Sangha by hitting the subscribe button, sharing your favorite intentional tip, joining me for a class on the mat, or better yet, finding me in nature. This yoga off the mat journey is courtesy of Integrated Natural Health, where we connect wisdom and wellness through nature. Make someday your now day. May all of our thoughts be divinely inspired. May all of our words be authentic and true. May all of our hearts be touched with love and joy. And may the time that we devote to our practice of compassion bring peace to all beings. Om Shanti. Namaste. Now that we've arrived here, I would not change a thing. Knew that we'd survive here with all the goodness we would bring. Of this I sing. Everybody swimming in sunshine, everybody feeding fine, everybody join the front line, ain't nobody left behind. Everybody swimming in sunshine, everybody feeling fine, everybody join the